We're tackling the tough topic of race today on the morning show, race and racism. And uh, we're going to do so because of a really interesting new book that has just been published called Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. Uh, it is uh, the work of of uh, Margaret L. Anderson, who is the Edward F. and Elizabeth Goodman Rosenberg Professor Emerita at the University of Delaware. She has been exploring issues related to race and racism for a long, long time and has a number of interesting books to her credit, including Race in Society, The Enduring American uh, Dilemma. And uh, this new book is published by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, Professor Margaret Anderson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Oh, thank you very much, and good morning to everyone. I'm really uh, pleased that we can have this uh, this conversation. Could you tell us, first of all, why race and racism and race relations, why that has been so important to you and to your, your academic life and professional career over all of these years? That's a very complicated question, but I'll answer it by talking about my own life just a little bit. I grew up in quite different racial environments. Um, Now, as a child, of course, I had very little understanding of this at the time, but I was born and raised for my early years in Oakland, California, in what was then pretty much a white working-class neighborhood. We moved in 1958 to Jim Crow, or right to Jim Crow in Rome, Georgia, a small North Georgia town. And so as a young girl, I witnessed firsthand some of the ravages of strict racial segregation in our society. Of course, I had no understanding of it at the time, but it must have at some level, you know, piqued my curiosity, made me want to understand why people could be treated so poorly and so differently based on simply their racial identity. After living in Georgia for a few years, in my high school years, we moved to Boston, Massachusetts, supposedly the liberal heart of the North. And what I noticed was that even though there was not formal racial segregation, my high school was equally segregated to the one that I went to in Georgia. So I think at some level, those early experiences in my life made me very curious. My mother used to say, oh, you're always so curious and asking so many questions. And then as a student in college during the social movements of the 1960s, my eyes were opened up and I really began to see both race relations as well as women's lives very differently than the way I had been taught as I grew up. And so I dedicated myself at that point in time to learning all I could, both formally and informally. And I suppose that was the start of my career as a teacher and writer about race. I really appreciate uh, how you put it in the uh, book's introduction when you say, as a white woman who grew up in very different racial environments, I have had to face my own discomforts as I learned about race and racism. Can you just spell out for us at least some of what those discomforts were and maybe to this day still are? I, I think it's an interesting choice of words. Well, it is, and it really spins off of something else that I talk about uh, uh, briefly in the introduction, because I was once giving a guest lecture in a class about race, and a young white male student said to me, Dr. Anderson, you're making me very uncomfortable. 
And my reply to him was, well, that's the purpose of your education, to get you to question things you previously believed. So I do believe that, and I think my own uh, coming of age and changing and how I think is a good example of it. But some of the discomforts are, first of all, white people, I think, are afraid to talk about race, even when they are well-meaning, because they're so afraid of being accused of being a racist by saying something that's off or even unintentionally uh, insulting. Uh, I think in my own case, one of the ways that I have really learned is that I worked in some situations and contexts that were where I was one of the few white people in the room. And so that's not always a comfortable place for white people. But I think we have to learn to listen, um, to be willing to admit our mistakes. Uh, and I suppose that in a general way is what I mean about being uncomfortable. Because sometimes you'll be confronted with actual anger because of the hurt that Latinos and African Americans have experienced in this society at the hands of white people. Hmm. I wonder if you would mind sharing one specific story that that you touch on in your introduction, which I found especially interesting. This is after your family moved from Oakland to Rome, Georgia. You were 10 years old at the time of that move in 1958. And you mention an interesting moment that once occurred on a city bus there in Rome, Georgia. It's such an interesting, such an interesting little story. I would appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. Well, I'm just only laughing because your listeners are going to think I'm a little nuts. But when we lived in Oakland, California, where for a long time we didn't have a car and relied on urban transportation to get places, I just have such fond memories of getting on the bus on MacArthur Boulevard where I lived and running to the very back of the bus with my grandmother and sitting on that last row because, and this is what's embarrassing, I really liked the smell of the bus fumes. Now, I would never want to do that now, but it was a habit. And so when we moved to Georgia into Jim Crow segregation, although we rarely used city buses because they were really at the time intended primarily to get black domestic workers into white neighborhoods, and white people typically only used, say, a school bus. But nonetheless, I one time got on a city bus in Rome and ran to the back of the bus with my white grandmother, who quickly reprimanded me, letting me know that that was not a place where white people should be sitting. And I didn't know anything about transportation and segregation at the time. I had certainly not heard of Plessy versus Ferguson, this 19th century Supreme Court case that had mandated legal segregation. But that memory is really embedded in my experience, and I think it might have been one of the ways that even at the age of 10, I started to think that our country's race relations, for lack of a better word, in the 10-year-old mind, they were just weird, and that there was something wrong with it. But I certainly didn't understand it at the time. We're speaking with Margaret L. Anderson about her newest book called Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. I want to ask you about the subtitle of the book and the fact that you do indeed focus on the United States and the, the situation with race and race, racism here. Uh, at one point uh, uh, in the chapter called Feeling Race in Everyday Life, you write, outside the United States, people do not understand 
how Americans see race. But see race, we do, every day and in virtually every aspect of life. I wonder if you could just touch for a moment on something that's really not the within the scope of this specific book, but the way in which we seem to have a unique situation about race and racism here in the United States versus the way race and racism is understood and or plays out uh, in other parts of the world. I, I'm, I'm sure to at least some extent your studies of this have have taken you into that complicated realm as well. I wonder if you can just kind of enlighten us on how we differ from the rest of the planet when it comes to some of, some of these issues. I think it would be good to know that before we start digging into a few specifics. That is a very interesting question and requires a great deal of unpacking, so let me do my best. Um, First of all, to start out, I'm recalling a moment when I was traveling outside of the United States, uh, actually consulting in Hong Kong, and this was many years ago. And all of the people there as scholars were asking me, I don't understand this notion of race in the United States. And it was one of the first times when I realized that this really was odd to people from other nations. Now, having said that, one of the things I'll say is that in the United States, our particular understanding of race evolves from the particular history that we have had as first a slaveholding nation, uh, then a nation that legally mandated racial segregation, and now all of the complexity of that history that we have inherited. Now, having said that, I also want to be clear that race and racism are a global phenomenon. People now use the term the global north to refer to Western Europe and uh, North America versus the global south. And why have they done that? They've done that because the long history of colonial domination that has characterized world history, not just U.S. history, has marked certain people, whether they be African people by origin or Southeast Asian people or the indigenous people of Latin and South America, those people have been racialized, by which I mean socially constructed as a so-called race. And as you unpack all of those diverse and yet interrelated histories, you begin to see how the process of colonization and domination by Western nations has shaped racism throughout the world, even though in different ways in different places. So yes, the United States is unique. We have our own history of race, which is transforming as we live through it right now. Um, But we are not the only nation in the world to uh, stratify people based on presumed differences many of which are associated but not based in skin color. Right. As you, the, 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 the moment in the book that I just read from, it, it makes reference to the fact that, that race is everywhere. Uh, and, and you seem to be specifically saying in America, race is everywhere, in our daily interactions, in the cultural images around us, and in the spaces we occupy. Um, and are you saying that's especially true here, 
or is that true everywhere? And is it that people who don't live here don't understand the specifics of how it plays out here? I'm not an expert on other countries, so I'm going to answer your question only in the context of the United States. And what I mean is that race shapes everything in everyday life, from our consciousness to the way that we interact with other people, to popular culture, to the very distribution of resources in all of our institutions, education, the economy, the criminal justice system. It's everywhere. Now, having said that, it's also invisible to many people, particularly white people, who can take their own racial status somewhat for granted and are not confronted with the realities of racism unless they are opening their eyes. I, I use a quote in the book from the wonderful film, The Color of Fear, where one of the African-American men in the film, while talking about his own experience, uh, equates this to those spikes in parking lots that if you drive against them will shred your tires, but if you go with the flow, you barely notice that they are there. And I think that's a really great metaphor for how white people might experience race in society, because not being subjected to the ravages of racism, they may well not see its importance, even though it's everywhere, as a number of the examples in the book. And even though they are, in a sense, participants in it, without perhaps being consciously aware of it at all. Well, they certainly can benefit from it, um, even with good intention to transform it. Although I also have to put a caveat on that, because not all white people benefit from our society in the same way. I wouldn't be so naive as to say that. And I think white people often get their hackles up when you use a term like white privilege because they don't see themselves as privileged people and really might not be relative to some others. On the other hand, being white in this society has really shaped the resources that people have available to them. I think if there is any concept uh, that you explore in your book that is very difficult to grasp, and I even find it difficult to grasp after having read several books on the topic and interviewed several authors on this specific topic. It remains a little bit difficult for me to to fully understand, and that is this whole notion of what is race and how real is the concept of race. And I think for a lot of us who grew up making assumptions that, yes, there are different races, and race uh, race is one of the things you are, and uh, and it, it it's seemed very obvious and almost uh, something you don't even need to, to talk about because it is so obvious, it goes without saying, and yet uh, you are trying to help us un- unpack that whole notion of race and to understand that uh, it is something that we have constructed, and it doesn't in a sense, really exist apart from our construction of it. Tell us more about this whole notion of, of just what race itself is and what a recent construction it, in fact, is. Well, you've just said it better than I do, I think. <laughs> so, so can I repeat your own words? No, I won't do that. But, but I do say to my students when I teach racial inequality, I say if there's one thing that you're going to learn from this class, it is, and I make them repeat it, 
race is a social construction. So what do I mean by that? I am a sociologist. We see most of the world as having been constructed through the practices of people over time and currently. And race is a good example. Obviously, we all have our racial identities that we have learned. Some of them are more complex than others. But my point in talking about race as a social construction is that race is not just about an individual attribute, which I think is the way most people think about it. The whole notion of race in our society has really been made up over the last hundreds of years as a notion about human difference that was explicitly created to justify the exploitation of a certain class, i.e. manufactured race of people who were used to provide free labor for the building of our society. And so the notion that somehow people have race was really made up only in the context of Western slavery. Uh, One of the things I think I say in the book is race does not create racism. It's the other way around. Racism has created the concept of Mm. race. And what we know from biology and uh, current contemporary genetic research, there is no such thing as race in any biological notion. Uh, you know, if you look at all the human genome project and the way that people can now deconstruct our basic genetic makeup, what we know is that human beings, no matter where they come from, nationally, geographically, and so forth, we are like 99.1% exactly alike in a biological genetic sense. And yet we have inherited this socially created concept of race as somehow marking us as different. Right. And that construction really came from economic exploitation. So I, I think at one point in the book you 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 make the point that there is one human species mm-hmm. uh, and that even in, in terms of all the different races, uh, ethnic backgrounds and so on, at the heart of it, we are so much more alike than we are different. But we have created this notion of race, which in a sense underscores the differences, which in a sense are cosmetic differences as much as anything, and and really obscure the fact that we are so much the same. Is is that what you're saying? You've said it very well. I think one line in your in this chapter, which is called simply race, you say, race is generated and sustained in society, which uh, points to the fact that sometimes, maybe quite often, it is it is for the sake of exploitation. I suppose it's also possible uh, for a society to create this hierarchy for other reasons, but it obviously it is very very conducive to the whole matter of exploitation, and our human history points to that pretty clearly. And the complexity of it is that though the notion of race is a manufactured idea, manufactured by particular human beings, nonetheless, race is real in the sense that racism has structured and does structure our society. That's the real sociological message here, that race is a human humanly created notion, but it has real consequences. 
There's a famous line by a sociological theorist of the earlier 20th century, situations defined as real are real in their consequences. And so race, this notion of race, has had devastating human consequences. And we should all be worked up about that, because fundamentally human beings are all alike, but that's not the way we've created our world. Right. You know, my favorite example of that, can I I go on for just a minute? Is this notion of Caucasian. Um, And I'll bet you that it's not all of your listeners, certainly most of them, probably at some point in their day have had to check a box about their racial identity where they were asked if they were white or, quote, Caucasian. That whole notion of Caucasian has such racist origins that just about every time I have to fill out a survey or a doctor's appointment or something that has it, I feel like writing a little sociological lesson. Because where that term comes from is the mid-18th century. It was invented by a man named Johann Blumenbach, who at the time, like many other quasi-scientists, was trying to create a hierarchical taxonomy of human beings. And he thought the people of the Russian Caucasus were the most beautiful, most intelligent people in the world. And in his taxonomy, he put them at the top of this chain of superiority, and he named them Caucasians. Well, to this day, that one man's socially constructed concept lives with us and is unquestioned. And and we run into it in everyday life. And every time we do, I cringe because the whole manufacturing of this notion of race leaps out at me every time I see that word. Right. I guess the I'm I'm trying to put myself in the in the shoes of someone hearing this and being skeptical about the whole notion that that race is almost this thing that somebody made up that isn't really there. Uh because I mean it does it does seem like there's a big difference between someone who lives on a fjord in Norway and somebody who lives in the heart of Africa, for instance, that 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 there there are obviously very obvious differences in terms of of what these two people would look like, and when they would see each other, one would one can imagine, let's say that that face to face encounter happened five thousand years ago, one would think that they would notice that we don't look alike. And it's more of a difference than I don't look like uh, this other Norwegian man down the road, but this is somebody who obviously comes from a different place. That seems like a more innocent uh, way of of thinking about race without any kind of sense of hierarchy, and I'm better than you. Uh, but 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 I think it, I think it's that kind of reality that makes it sort of hard to think of race as only something we construct and that it has nothing to do with us actually being different from each other, albeit in a a very minor way, but sometimes in a very kind of noticeable way. I think that's part of what makes it, it's easy for us to stumble as we try to understand this, this notion of race. Well, of course, and there's no question that people have differences. Um, Some of them may appear to be physical, but they're cultural. And the big difference is the people of African nations did not go out and colonize the Norwegians from the fjords of Norway and create a system of slavery 
based on the assumption that somehow Norwegians are less intelligent, less sophisticated, um, more primitive than African peoples. That's the difference. It's the history mm. that has manufactured race. And, you know, I'm saying that because my ancestry actually is Norwegian. No. I do not look at all like a stereotypical Norwegian. I have brunette hair. I have a grandmother who was born in a small town called Hell, Norway, so I can actually claim I had the grandmother from Hell, but I did really love her. <laughs> uh, but you see, it's the treatment of human beings that has created racial inequality, not human difference. If you and I walk down the street and encounter each other, we're going to notice each other's differences, whatever they may be. But it's different to notice difference than to create a society around the notion that some of those differences make people inherently less human. And right. therefore, we create them as property. That's what we did. Right. And, and of course, one could, again make those distinctions and not go quite that far but just the fact that we we create this notion of I'm this race and you're this other race that just underscores the difference between us when the yeah, difference between the us world? yeah go and, ahead. and and the and the difference between us really doesn't matter that much and yet uh and yet there it is we create this system that highlights that, that underscores that, and that is so prone to this notion then of hierarchy, that we're different from each other and I'm up here and you're down there. Look, we are all small creatures on a very large planet, and if we don't start getting the idea that we are all in this together and have a common stake in the survival of our world, um, we're really in deep trouble. So would that the world would operate by recognizing that human beings are different from each other? I notice, for example, you have some musical talent. I am pretty bad at that, though I try. <laughs> but I'm not constructing a world saying that, therefore, I am inferior to you, except insofar as I don't think I'm a very good piano player. <laughs> good good point. Yeah, that's right. Just it's, saying. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's so so the, the the differences between us uh we have to be sure to to treat those differences in a way that 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 celebrate differences without creating this ladder of importance and that is what human beings have all too often been prone to do. You know, and it's not only about a ladder of hierarchy or importance. What we know from research on diversity is people also make better decisions when they make those decisions within groups where there are diverse opinions. So this notion of difference is actually one of the resources that we have as a, as a society, even though we all too often, you know, might surround ourselves only with like thinking people or like-minded people, and history tells us we make grave mistakes when we do that, because there's no expression at the table of alternative points of view that might actually lead to better policy decisions. And there's a lot of research now coming even from business that shows that having a more diverse workforce can actually enhance your corporate profits. Not that that's my major point in the world, but it's something businesses are learning. If you have all the same people sitting around the table, you just reproduce the same old, same old, and it's not always for the good of the whole. 
We're speaking with Margaret L. Anderson about her book, Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. Uh, Another one of my favorite lines from your book, and this also comes from the chapter called Race, is when you say that race is a process, not a thing. <laughs> that's really intriguing. And, uh, and then, of course, you spell out some of the ways in which that is true. I'm, I'm especially interested to know um, how you think that is helpful for us uh, to think of race in that way as a process rather than a thing. wow, that takes an entire sociology course to explain, so I'll try to be simple about it. Um, Well, partially that's what we've been talking about, because we have inherited a notion of race that comes from a very long-term social and historical set of events, or what sociologists would call a process. Um, What I would say is I think right now our society is also uh, at a point in time when we are rather reconstructing the concept of race, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Because our population, though it has always been quite diverse, is becoming more diverse. And we are moving away from a kind of strict black and white model of race relations that was more characteristic of, say, Southern Jim Crow racism, um, toward a more complex view of our population. So the good news is that that gives us the possibility of sort of deconstructing this concept of race in a different process. On the other hand, some people are just getting constructed in what I would say new forms of racism. So now we think not just black and white, we think black, brown, white. So because Latinos are becoming racialized by virtue of the status of some of them in the labor market. Um, So, you know, we're in a pretty complex moment where this process of creating and recreating and constructing and deconstructing race is a complicated matter. And where we will go with that as a country remains to be seen. But the fact is our population is changing. And the so-called white population is predicted to become a numerical minority. That doesn't mean they will be the least powerful people, um, but they will become less, a smaller proportion of the population. Hmm. I appreciated the fact that uh, you make the distinction in your book between uh, prejudice and racism, and Mm -hmm. that prejudice is an individual attitude, whereas racism is something built in or baked into the the whole structure of society. And I think Mm -hmm. that is very intriguing and potentially very, very helpful. Um, How do you think this can serve the cause of combating racism to understand this distinction between racism and prejudice? It means that we have to not just change attitudes, which is really what prejudice is. Prejudice is a judgmental attitude about anyone based on some presumed social characteristics, such as race or gender, sexual orientation. There are various forms of prejudice. But prejudice is fundamentally an attitude. You're correct that I see, as do other social scientists, racism is more systemic. It's built into the way that institutions treat each other. And you can actually 
have people in those institutions who do not express any prejudice, may not feel prejudice, and yet benefit in different ways based on their placement in an institution that is is based on a racial hierarchy. Um, So to me, making that distinction is important because, of course, we want to change people's attitudes and create a more open-minded, more tolerant, accepting of difference society. But we also need to change institutional policies and practices. And a lot of research indicates that really attitudes change when you change institutions. So there's a kind of interactive effect between the two of them there. But the reason I think this is important, particularly now, is that as we're witnessing a resurgence of overt, horrific forms of racial bigotry, it's easy for people to conclude that that's our major problem. And believe me, it is a major problem. I don't want to downplay it at all. But even in periods of time when overt racial bigotry is not so openly expressed and might actually be declining, institutional racism can and does persist. Hmm. So we need solutions that deal both at the level of individual attitudes, but more deeply at the level of transforming institutions. Hmm. I am a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but I suppose I shouldn't be, but I have never, until I read your book, understood where the word prejudice comes from. And uh, so, and I think, I suspect there'll be others listening who have also never stopped to think that, that prejudice is about pre-judgment, pre-judgment. And, and, and that in and of itself uh, is, is really important for us to, to think about. Uh, and again, I don't know that I've ever thought about it quite as deeply as I have after reading your book about about what what it means to prejudge someone simply when you see them <laughs> and see the color of their skin or see them and see what clothes they're wearing or see them or or see just their name on a piece of paper. Uh, but the prejudgments that that all of us make uh, all of the time. Uh, how would you? have us confront this ugly reality that so many of us uh, engage in prejudgment, often without even realizing that we're doing it? Well, first, I'm going to thank my high school Latin teachers for (laughs) having pointed out the origins of many words. Um, So what would I do about this? Well, my answer is in the title of my book, I Want Us to Get Smarter About Race. And that is not something that happens overnight. It also happens differently for different populations of people. Um, I want my book to be read not just by white people, but also by diverse groups of people of color. Um, Though people will learn different things from my book, depending on their own situation in life. Um, So how do I sum up what I want people to take from this? I want people to understand this doesn't happen overnight. There are not simple solutions to dealing with the issue of prejudice or the issue of institutional racism. But I wish that we would start to take this very seriously, to not make it just one of many issues tacked on to various political, social uh, conversations. The question also, when it comes to the conversations that we have, uh, can also 
be not only about confronting our own racism or perhaps the racism of someone else, but also how do we sometimes talk about complicated matters like the choices people make that might be poor choices that we might in some ways carelessly ascribe to race when in fact they have absolutely nothing to do with race. But it really becomes difficult. I mean, you yourself say, uh, to be sure, some people, including people of color, make bad decisions. And uh, so when it comes to somebody who is a counselor or a teacher or a coach uh, and, and one is speaking, in a sense, across a racial divide, how would you suggest that we confront these kind of issues, these kind of realities, uh, so the conversations we have can be helpful? You know, I make a lot in near the end of the book in the concept of empathy. And I don't think, again, that's something you build overnight. But I do think if people are in a position where they are faced with someone, say it's a student or a client, who's in a difficult circumstance, the point is to put yourself into that person's circumstance. And all too often when it comes to issues around race, and I'm talking here about white people, they make all kinds of judgments about, oh, if only that person had done this, if only that person had done this, if only they would work hard enough, if only they had better family values. I mean, you've heard all of these tropes. And yet so seldom does the person who makes those claims know anything about the actual lived experience of the person that they are judging. And it's often not even an individual person that they're thinking about. It's some generalized group stereotype that somehow, you know, I'll I'll take one of the classic ones. You know, poor women of color just have too many babies. If they just wouldn't get pregnant, their lives would be better. When people make those judgments with no concept of the life circumstances from which such a woman might be coming. Now, might it have been a bad decision to get pregnant when you're young? Perhaps. But, you know, stop making, it goes back to what you asked about prejudgments. We make prejudgments in the absence of any knowledge. And so what I want people to do in terms of getting smart about race is to take on the task, and for many of us it's been a very long-term task, of coming to understand the circumstances in which different groups and individuals live and having some empathy that would drive how we treat people and drive the social policies that affect people's lives. Hmm. A very interesting question is posed a little later in the book, uh, and that is around the whole notion of colorblindness. You tell us a friend of yours asked you uh, not long ago, don't you want a colorblind society? And your reply was, I wanted to say yes, but I couldn't. Actually, I wanted to say yes and no. Tell us more about this whole notion of colorblindness, of us not even seeing each other's color or race, and, uh, and, and, and why it's more complicated than it might seem to be on the surface. Well, I still want to say yes and no, because, of course, I think the American ideal and one that I share is 
found in the Reverend Martin Luther King's statement that we would like to be able to judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. I believe that. I think that is an American creed. On the other hand, here's why yes and no. When we create so-called colorblind solutions to some of our racial problems, we tend to overlook that race still matters in how institutions are structured and how they distribute their resources. So in the book, I quote one of my favorite Supreme Court justices, at least of those now no longer with us, a man for whom I named my lab, uh, Blackman, Justice Harry Blackman, who wrote, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There's no other way. And in order to treat some persons equally, sometimes we have to treat them differently. And I think that gets to the heart of this whole discussion around colorblind solutions to our racial problems versus those that can be race-specific. Because sometimes we really do have to recognize the reality of race in shaping people's lives in order to open up opportunities. Now, I know this is controversial and we don't have days to talk about it, but college admissions are a really good example of that. If we And we know this from research and from the aftermath of college admissions um, that have had to, for a variety of reasons, eliminate affirmative action. When that happens and we have colorblind admissions based solely on such things as grades and test scores, we have ended up disadvantaging students of color who might otherwise perform perfectly well in a given university. It's tricky, isn't it? Because uh, at, at, one, at one point in our conversation, we were essentially saying race is, in a sense, an artificial construct somebody came up with in order to uh, subjugate another people. And then we have uh, other instances in, when, in which race feels like something that's indeed very real. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of what makes it hard to handle. And, of course, for many people, uh, they only want to be conscious of race when it is convenient for themselves uh, versus, uh, versus something that is be- of benefit to, to others. Uh, I think that's probably also underscores why having deep and meaningful conversations about race matters so much. Yeah, they're not going to be simple conversations. This is not a simple problem. And the fact is that in the past, and to actually in the present, race has been used so perniciously in this society to exclude people from opportunities that it's little wonder that people want not to have race-conscious solutions to some of our problems. But on the other hand, being purely colorblind, by which I mean not recognizing race, making claims that, oh, we're beyond that now. It's just simply not true. We need to be more cognizant of how, I'll say racism instead of using the word race, how racism continues to shape advantage and disadvantage in this culture. And if we don't do that, we're going to just reproduce some of the same inequalities that we can so easily document now. I have heard some people say that that while it is terrible to see uh, an, an uprise of overt racism in this country, as we have over the last couple of years, I mean, it has been terribly disturbing to see that. On the other hand, it is, in a sense, 
a means of bringing out into the open uh, attitudes that perhaps uh, until until recently uh, people were much more, in a sense, secretive about. And perhaps in the open air it is possible to address some of these attitudes more directly. Do you see any validity to that uh, suggestion? Well, I think you're right that the white nationalist marches, the resurgence of white supremacist movements that have long been with us, has been shocking and deeply disturbing to good people of all different races in this country. On the other hand, so I, that's, that, that's good news in that I think it has called attention to this problem. But I do think it would be a mistake to see that our problems are solely a matter of overt bigotry and attitudes of white supremacy. So I don't want people to conclude, even though it has been a kind of shock, uh, I don't want people to conclude that this is the only form that racism takes in society and to somehow let, you know, other people off the hook as if everybody but them is, you know, is not a racist. Um, nobody wants to be called a racist, and white supremacists are just more overt about it than others, but we are all influenced by racism, whether we see it consciously or not. And so my hope is that this horrid rise of white supremacist actions that we have seen can generate more of a commitment in our nation to fully untangling what race is, call it out, and do something about it. Hmm. I want to finish by giving you a chance to explain what the reader will find in Appendix A of your book. I do want to mention that Appendix B uh, lists further resources uh, Mm -hmm. closely tied to each chapter of the book, and there are also footnotes as well. But Appendix A, I think, is going to be of special interest to just about every reader. Explain what's there. Well, I wrote this book because I wanted it to be used by people to create actions and conversations, whether it's in a workplace, a community organization, a nonprofit organization, you name it. I wanted people to take on the task of confronting racism in society. And I know that simply reading a book doesn't necessarily do that. So Appendix A, which is also organized for each chapter, has within it questions for discussion groups. Uh, which might be discussion groups of all white people. They might be discussion groups of people from diverse racial ethnic backgrounds. Uh, And I wrote those questions specifically to get to the heart of some of the things we've been talking about and to hope that people in whatever settings they find it appropriate within, that those questions can help generate further conversation. And that can be as simply as at the dinner table with friends or family, but it could also be used within work organizations. I think it's important to point out that at the very beginning of that appendix, I've also given some links to some excellent websites that help people establish some ground rules for such conversations so that those conversations can be frank, honest, and open without people just devolving into hostility and anger. But we have to recognize that talking about race does involve human feelings because there's a great deal of hurt, there's a great deal of fear, there's also a great deal of ignorance around racism in our society. And so I hope people will delve into that appendix quite deeply in whatever context seems appropriate to them. Mm. The book, again, is Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation, published by Roman and Littlefield, the author Margaret 
L. Anderson. Professor Anderson, I am deeply grateful for you for uh, writing this book and for making time in your schedule to have this conversation. I deeply appreciate it both, and I thank you so much. Well, I thank you. That was a, a really interesting interview. I really appreciate your questions.